there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we have come to the figures on the wind. <laughs> Finally, we have come to the end of Canto 5 of Inferno, lines 88 through 142, giant passage. But let me say two things. One, if you don't know this podcast, we are walking through Dante's masterwork comedy one passage at a time at my own very small step speed. What you're going to hear is my translation of the medieval Tuscan. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go all to the same place. You'll find a header tab, Walking With Dante. And if you are just dropping in here in this podcast just to say there's a lot behind us. We have walked a long way to get up here and to finally hear the first great center of hell. So go back, catch up to us, or just stick with us right here. I'm not going to do this in voices because I can't figure out how to voice Francesca. So I'm just going to let her be herself in my voice, which is wild. And I trust that you'll be able to hear who's speaking at what point, but she's going to start speaking first. O oh, gracious and benevolent living creature who comes in the doom-filled air to visit us, the ones who stain the world with blood, if the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray he grant you peace, because you have displayed so much pity over our bad twists of fate. All the things that it pleases you to speak or hear, we really want to hear and speak with you while the wind has quieted, as now. I was born in that land where the river Po and all its tributaries slow down and descend to find peace in the sea. Love that quickly catches fire in the gentle heart seized this one with me because of my gorgeous body that has been taken from me and the way it was taken still hurts me. Love that doesn't stop anyone loved from loving seized me with such a strong passion for the sky that as you see, it hasn't abandoned me yet. Love drove both of us to one death. Kaina waits for the man who blotted out our lives. These words were blown from them to us. When I heard these scarred souls, I bowed my head and kept it down until the poet said to me, What are you thinking about? When I could reply, I began, Alas, how many sweet thoughts, how much desire drove these two to the sorrowful pass. Then I turned to speak again and began, Francesca, all this pain makes me weep with sorrow and pity. But tell me, in the time of those sweet sighs, by what means and how did love make you cognizant of your dubious desires? And she to me, there is no greater sorrow than to remember our happy times in the middle of misery, as your teacher knows. But if you really want to know the originary root of our love that you are so drawn to, I will tell it as one who both weeps and tells. One day, just for pleasure, we were reading about how love got the better of Lancelot. We were alone, without any suspicions. That reading made us lock eyes more than once and rob the color from our faces. But on a single point, we were defeated. When we read how the much-desired smile was kissed by such a great lover, this guy, who will now never be divided from me, kissed me on my mouth, trembling all over. That book and the one who wrote it 
were our Galeotto. That day, we didn't read any further. All the time the spirit said this, the other one beside her wailed, such that pity overcame me as if I died, and I collapsed as a dead body collapses. That's Francesca's giant novelle, her story about what happened to her. So I'm going to do this in several ways, but let me tell you what's going to happen first before we get to Francesca and get to the speech itself. I'm not going to read it again because there is going to be a second episode on this exact passage. This episode is the case against Francesca. The next episode will be the case for Francesca. So let's just say I'm going to divide this passage, this long story that Francesca tells and tells until the pilgrim himself faints. I'm going to just do it like a lawyer. Why am I doing this whole bit about for and against Francesca? Because over the centuries, she has oh my gosh, cost a flotilla of interpretations to <laughs> encircle her. She's either the wiliest, slipperiest of all the sinners, or she is a noble figure who does not deserve her fate. So, given how much has swirled around Francesca, it strikes me that we should pose an argument against her and then an argument for her. After all, this whole thing started with Minos, judging the sinners. So we're going to pull it into a court of law. Let me back up and let me start someplace else. The person who's speaking is Francesca da Polenta. She is the aunt of Guido Novello da Polenta. If you remember when I talked to you about who Dante was and about his life, Guido Novello da Polenta is Dante's last patron before his death, before Dante's death. Dante goes and uh, is uh, a guest of, he's under the protection of Guido Novello da Polenta. So he's writing about his patron's mm, relative. However, there's a fudge here. He may not yet be Guido da Polenta's um, artistic <laughs> courtly figure. He may have not yet moved to that place. And so whether he's actually writing this for Guido Novello is a, some bit of a question, but this is definitely his aunt, Francesca da Polenta. She married a man named Giovanni Malatesta uh, of Rimini, uh, Giovanni <laughs> Badhead Malatesta. And I don't know actually out of history whether that's actually his name or some allegorical name that has been given to him, but Okay, she married Giovanni Malatesta. He actually went by the name of Gianciotto, which means crippled John, crippled John Malatesta. And she married him and then fell for his brother, Paolo. And that's who shows up here on the wind, Paolo and Francesca. I should tell you that Boccaccio, oh my gosh, did unbelievable amounts of research in the next generation on the comedy, and he tried to track down people who actually knew these figures and who they were, and Boccaccio has a whole story. It could be his invention, it could be real, in which Paolo is the intermediary, and back in the days of courting under courtly love, you needed an intermediary to come between you and your beloved. And so Paolo, uh, Giovanni's or Gianciotto's brother, is that emissary, that, that intermediary between uh, Francesca and her intended. 
And that, in fact, John Chotto is not very attractive. He's crippled John. He's probably not a very <laughs> courtly lover figure. Paolo shows up. Francesca thinks that must be the man she's marrying Paolo. She falls for him and out they go and blah, blah, blah. The other stories of this are a little harder than Boccaccio's stories. They're basically that Francesca and Paolo both were married. They had children. She eventually had an affair with her husband's brother, Paolo. And in the end, Gianciotto or Giovanni killed Francesca and Paolo because of their adulterous love behind his back two bits in this that I should tell you about what's going on here, just to explain two words that may have jumped out at you the passage and didn't make any sense. When Francesca goes into that giant speech about what love does, quickly catches fire in the gentle heart, seizes the one you know with me because of the gorgeous of my body. Love doesn't stop anyone love from loving. She says all that, and then she says love drove both of us to one death because they were murdered together. Kaina waits for the man who blotted out our lives. Kaina is a circle of the, well, it's a piece of the last circle of hell, the circle of treachery way down at the bottom of hell. She's naming it, naming it way up here in Canto 5, a piece of hell we're not going to get to until way down toward the very back of Inferno, which leads us to believe that Dante's got some kind of scheme already in his head, that he already knows where this thing is headed, unless this line was rewritten and redrafted later. But she names a really low part of hell, Kaina, which is the place of treachery reserved for those who kill their own kin. Thus, Giovanni kills his brother Paolo. And then later, let me explain one other word that may have jumped out to you. When they're reading the book about Lancelot and Guinevere and their love affair, and she says, you know, the guy who's never, this guy who will never now be divided from me, kissed me on my mouth, trembling all over. That book and the one who wrote it were our Galeotto. Galeotto, I just left in the Tuscan as it stands. It's a difficult word to figure out, but basically, Galo. Uh, is the intermediary between Lancelot and Guinevere in the French Arthurian romance. Gallo or Gallao is the one who comes between and kind of, uh, you know, works out the terms of Lancelot and Guinevere's illicit love. So she's what she's saying is the book and the one who wrote it were our intermediary. We're, our, we're, we're, we're just like the figure Gallo in the story. That's what this book was for us. It was the intermediary that brought us together on that day. And then she adds the line, that day we didn't read any further because, uh-oh, you know what they did. They were reading about Lancelot and Guinevere. They got all hot and bothered. Paolo kissed her on the mouth, and they put the book down and did what people do who get all hot and bothered. And that's the moment in which our pilgrim collapses. Paolo is wailing beside Francesca. It's wild. So let's go back and let's look at the passage and let's build the case against Francesca. Francesca begins, O gracious and benevolent living creature who comes in the doom-filled air to visit us. You will notice that she opens with flattery. 
the first words out of her mouth. Remember, Dante has seen them on the wind. They're going so light. And I made a big deal about is that light weight or is it their attitude toward the wind? But when they come and like doves coming down to Dante, kind of with their wings expanded and firm and coming down, as we saw in the last passage, she comes down and she starts to speak. Oh, gracious and benevolent living creature. She is drawing the pilgrim into her web, onto her side. And you'll notice that she is quite the talker. She has got a lot to say. And what she has got to say is constantly in her self-defense. That's the first bit of the case about her and the case against her. There's a second bit she's speaking okay we have this couple they're on the wind they're light on the wind francesca and paolo here they come down you know what she's speaking when she shouldn't not because of paolo that's true maybe in a medieval context she shouldn't speak before paolo speaks paolo never speaks all he does is just wail beside her but there was already a couple that we already saw we saw Paris and Helen in Virgil's list. So Francesca, although she has been called by the pilgrim, is speaking before her betters. So she stepped in front of a more noble couple to tell her story. Now you're going to say the pilgrim called her, true. The pilgrim did not call Paris and Helen, true. And yet at the same time, she is in front of the more noble people. In a medieval context, this is difficult. She's not practicing courtesy. She's not knowing her place. Instead, she just set into the story with flattery. Oh, gracious and benevolent living creature who comes. And notice she doesn't have any problem knowing that Dante's alive who comes in the doom-filled air to visit us, the ones who stain the world with blood. If the king of the universe were our friend, we would pray he'd grant you peace. Wow, the flattery's getting thick. Watch out. You know flatterers, they're hard to take. They'll suck you in and pull you to their side very deliberately because you've displayed, as she says, so much pity over the bad twist of our fate. And then notice this line. All the things that it pleases you to speak or hear, we really want to hear and speak with you while the wind has quieted us now. I was born. Wow, what? She seems to say, whatever you want to know, we really want to tell you. But does she wait for the pilgrim to ask her a question? No, she does not. She just launches into the story. I was born in that land. So she seems to invite something from the pilgrim, all the things that it pleases you to speak or hear. We really want to hear and speak with you, which seems to be an opening. Well, ask us what you want. But she doesn't let him. Instead, she just plows on. I was born in the land. In other words, third part of the case against Francesca. First, flattery. Second, speaking before her betters. Third, she is thoroughly controlling the story. And by it, she's going to thoroughly control the pilgrim. <laughs> and maybe the poet behind the pilgrim. But that's for the next episode. I was born in that land where the river Po and all its tributaries slow down to descend to find peace in the sea. And then she begins the nine line, the three tercets on love. Love. 
that quickly catches fire in the gentle heart sees this one with me, Paolo, because of my gorgeous body that has been taken from me, and the way it was taken still hurts me. Assuming she's talking about the murder, she might be talking about God and the judgment, but assuming she's talking about her murder love and then this line that doesn't stop anyone loved from loving doesn't that feel like it should be in a hallmark card it's <laughs> doesn't that feel like the modern world love it doesn't stop anyone loved from loving seized me with such a strong passion for this guy that as you see it hasn't abandoned me yet love drove both of us to one death and each time she says amor love amor that quickly catches fire amor that doesn't stop anyone love from loving amor that drove us both to one death we are a long way from libito in fact we're a long way from way back in line 38 when we started this canto about the lustful from e peccator carnali the sins of the flesh the carnal sins we're my gosh we're nowhere near peccator carnali we're at amor and she's telling us this over and over again this is what she's telling us it wasn't my fault i didn't do anything I didn't do anything wrong. She's not taking any responsibility. That's the fourth thing in the case against Francesca. I didn't do anything. Love uh, love grabbed me, and I, I can't help it. I fell in love with this guy. He's my husband's brother. I can't help it. It seized both of us, and I was so beautiful. It seized him. It's none of our, it's none of our faults. And instead, the real villain is my husband at least if you know the history, is my husband. Kaina waits for the man who blotted out our lives. She is absolutely walking away from her own part in this. Is she then twisting this Christian virtue of amor in order to absolve herself of any fault? That is a strong piece of the case against Francesca. Then she goes on. Well, uh, the passage goes on. When I heard these scarred souls, I bowed my head and kept it down until the poet said to me, what are you thinking about? She has, this is my fifth point, she has so successfully controlled the pilgrim and maybe the poet behind the pilgrim that classical literature in the form of Virgil has to step up and goose him to get him going again. When I heard these scarred souls, I bowed my head and kept it down until the poet said to me, what are you thinking about? Virgil right there, classical literature. And don't just think Virgil as guide. Classical literature is stepping into the middle of a medieval romance and saying, what are you making of all of this? Because that's what we're hearing. We're hearing a medieval romance more than that, we're going to hear about Lancelot and Guinevere and King Arthur. Well, not really King Arthur, but Lancelot and Guinevere. We're going to hear a Breton lay, one of the early Arthurian stories. That's what they're reading. That's what later comes up in the passage. And remember back to that double simile, cranes go overhead singing their sad songs. And I told you those songs, the word is lay, this Breton uh, form about Arthurian romance. This is what we're getting. This is a medieval romance about courtly love. 
back up and say something about courtly love. Courtly love is a medieval obsession. <laughs> we'll talk more about it in future episodes, but for now, let's just say courtly love is a kind of way in which love gets bound up in courtesy and it gets bound up in mannerly roles and it involves the kind of um, freeing of the heart away from social duties. There's no medieval story that runs around about a man who loved a woman, loved her so much over so many years that, you know, he sought her and sought her and sought her. And she kept saying, no, 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 no. My family says I cannot marry you. My family says I cannot be with you. You're not for me. I am, I'm encumbered. I'm, I'm promised to someone else. I can't be with you when I'm so encumbered. So eventually she gets married and this lover comes back and says, okay, now you're married. You've not encumbered anymore. In other words, you fulfilled your family's duty. So now you can be my lover. That is a prime example of courtly love because it is love that is stepping over the social duties in order to express itself almost as modern love. There's much, much, much more to courtly love than that. But that's part of it. And that's Francesca. She's a figure right out of courtly love. Hey, I married a guy. It's not my fault I fell in love with his brother. I'm just the victim of love. Don't believe her. When I could reply, the pilgrim goes on and says, I began, alas, how many sweet thoughts, how much desire drove these two to this sorrowful pass, al doloroso paso, paso right there. We already came across this word once. It does mean pass as in how you get through the mountains, but it can mean pass as in passage. And when we hear that word paso, passage, we immediately are called ahead in the text to figure out that these two are going to be condemned or fall into their sin by reading a passage of a work of literature. So this is sitting here as a first literary reference to the big drama that's about to come. So he turns back, the pilgrims turn back to speak again to them and says, Francesca, all this pain makes me weep with sorrow and pity, but tell me, in the time of those sweet sighs, by what means and how did love amore how did love make you cognizant of your dubious desires? Desiri. He's using these big Christian Dantian concepts. What happened to lust? What happened to peccator carnali? What happened to libido? Where did it go? Where is it? Tell me in the time of those sweet sighs by what means and how did love? make you cognizant of your dubious desires. Oh, and she's more than willing to go on. And she, to me, there is no greater sorrow than to remember our happy times in the middle of misery, as your teacher knows. This is the sixth piece of the case against Francesca. You will discover over the course of Inferno that one of the things the pilgrim is supposed to be doing is adding to the sorrows of the damned. As we go down in Inferno, the pilgrim will start to become complicit in their punishments. And so here he's adding to her sorrows, which is how he's going to have to learn to react to others of the damned. He's not cognizant of him doing it yet. He, the, the pilgrim hasn't chosen to add to her sorrows, but she seems to indicate that Virgil is spurring 
the pilgrim on to make her suffer more. She says, as your teacher knows. But if you really want to know the originary or the first, the primo root, if you really want to know of our love, <laughs> I don't have to point out to you anymore, do I? Del nostro amor, our love that you are so drawn to, I will tell it as one who both weeps and tells. Here comes the big story. One day, just for pleasure, per diletto, just for mm, fancy, for pleasure, we were reading, oh, oh, gosh, not reading the way we're reading the comedy. They're not studying it. They're not thinking about it. They're not diving into it. They're acting like people with, I don't know, some modern romance novel. They're reading Per Diletto, not for study, not for edification, not for education. That's another piece of the case against Francesca. The comedy is not written Per Diletto, to say the least. It is not just written so that you can skim across it. One day, just for pleasure, we were reading about how love got the better of Lancelot. Oh, man. We're back to those figures Virgil named off. Lancelot, Guinevere, peoples whose lust destroyed the social order. People whose illicit passions absolutely brought on chaos, not in themselves, but in the larger social Arthurian landscape. That's what they're reading about. This is a call back to Achilles and Helen and Dido and those figures that Virgil was naming on the wind. We were reading, Francesca says, about how love got the better of Lancelot. See, it wasn't his fault either. See, in romance, in, ro- in, in these giant tales that are developing about knights and their ladies and courtly love, you know what? It's nobody's fault. It's just love. And if you remember... Back in the passage, the pilgrim, Dante, said he was almost lost because of the ladies and their knights and how love got the better of them. See, it's all this courtly love tradition. It absolves you from all guilt. That's a strong point about her because, again, she's not taking any responsibility. I didn't do anything. I just read a book. And you know what? We were reading a book together and, well, it led to some things. She says, we were alone and without suspicions. Oh, listen to that. And we, we were just in it while we were just reading a book together. And we didn't do anything. I'm just with my brother-in-law. Come on, you can't blame us. Hmm, really? I think you can. We were alone and without suspicions. That reading made us lock eyes more than made us made us lock eyes more than once. We didn't do anything and robbed the color from our faces. But on a single point, we were defeated. As they read this Breton lay about Arthur and King Arthur's court, as we read how the much desired smile was kissed by such a great lover. There's Guinevere, much desired smile great lover Lancelot this guy who will now never be divided from me wow look at this kissed me on the mouth trembling all over the book and the one who wrote it were our galeotto they were our go-between and that day we didn't read any further because they climbed into bed together so the case against Francesca is that she does not practice the social order. She is a grand flatterer. She uses words in order to wrap 
the pilgrim further and further into confusion. She blames everything but herself, love, 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 and now a book. And she successfully controls the pilgrim. Meanwhile, we're being reminded that she's in the middle of misery. And that is my last point. The case against Francesca is that she's damned. She's in hell. Do you trust the damned? Do you trust them to tell you the truth? After all, we're not talking to somebody sitting up in heaven who's telling you this story about what happened to me. We're talking about somebody who's sitting in the second circle of hell, blowing around on the wind, light, as in a lightweight? I don't think so. She's not lightweight. She knows how to use words exactly. She knows how to make it seem as if I didn't do any. I don't really know why I'm damned. I'm just here. And you know, the real problem is that I got murdered. Kaina, as she says, waits for the man who blotted out our lives. That's the real problem, is I got murdered. Not that I committed adultery. There's a wild way in which this entire passage is an anti-romance. I This is not my idea. This is from a very prominent Dantean critic, Renato Poggioli. And his claim is that Dante has taken romance, this great medieval form, and wrapped it around into an anti-romance. And while Francesca is just feeding us the courtly love romance, the kind of stories you get about Arthurian courts or about lovers and their destined tragic fate, at the same time, you're not supposed to forget that it's being told to you by one of the damned. And so Dante is, hmm, Dante the poet is literally turning romance inside out. He's gutting it so that you understand that this form that is being written for pleasure, just for the pleasure of reading, actually is quite dangerous. And actually it leads to not only a soul's damnation, but it leads a soul to think that she didn't do anything wrong. Not Paolo. Last bit of this section. All this, all the time the spirit said this, the other one beside her, and this is, we're finally reminded that Paolo's there. My gosh, how many lines did she control? And I'm not saying this to say that women shouldn't control a lot of lines. Wait till we get up to, to paradise. There will be, oh my God, huge cantos controlled by female speakers. So I'm not saying this as, as a comment on her gender. I'm saying this as a comment on her personality, that her personality is so upfront and so in your face that she has controlled the end of this entire canto of Inferno. And suddenly we're reminded, oh, right, the guy she's with, he's still there. And he's just, he's just floating there crying. He's wailing out loud. And suddenly, ah, oh, suddenly such pity overcomes the pilgrim that he collapses as a dead body collapses. We've been set up for this. Remember? Back when he said, I was almost lost, pity overcame me, and I was almost lost. Remember that bit? And in fact, we've been even set up for this in another place. Back all the way in this canto in line 25, when I said we start out of, we've come out of Minos and we start to see the lustful for the first time. And then we get this line that I interpreted out of the poet. Now I begin to feel the notes of sadness. And I talked about how that was in the present tense. And I think it's a note from the poet before we jump back to the pilgrim. I think that we've been set up for this all along. This is this is the sadness that 
this happened, that these souls were going on the wind, that these were the big, giant, emblematic figures, Helen and Achilles. It came down to this bit of starlings, this bit of non-nobility, who then step out and tell their novelle, their novel, and it so shakes the pilgrim that the poet is still shaking at his desk, because this is his failure. This is the pilgrim's moment of failure. He's failed. Why? Because he feels so sorry for them, which means Francesca won. She won. She convinced him to see them not as the damned, but as the pitiful, as, the, as, as tragic. You know, they're tragic figures caught oh, in what they couldn't even control. And so she got it. She got the pity. She got him, the pilgrim, exactly where she wanted him, and he fainted away. Okay, that's my case against Francesca. And I'm going to call it off right now, because in the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I'm going to give you the case for Francesca. Like a lawyer arguing the other side, I want to tell you why I think Francesca is one of the most memorable and one of the most astounding figures in Inferno, if not in the entire comedy. So check back next time for the next episode. We're going to do the same passage again. And instead of reading it as an indictment of Francesca from the poet as she overwhelms the pilgrim, I'm going to read it as a much more difficult statement of Francesca, who is finally calling the poet on his own game. So subscribe drop a rating, do all the stuff you're supposed to do, and I will do all the stuff I'm supposed to do to get you through Canto V and the Lustful, and then we're going to look back on the whole thing and see what, well, I mean, God, look, think where we came from. We came from Minos and his tail through all of that, all the way up here to Francesca. What a canto. Unbelievable structure, movement, irony. Oh, see? Comedy is worthy of a slow pace. Come back next time. We'll talk more about Francesca. Mm-hmm.